Last week, we started the book of Colossians, and today we're going to finish Colossians chapter 1. Today's message is entitled, Christ in Me, the Hope of Glory. Now, Paul wrote this letter to a church, and it was actually a church that he had never visited personally. This was another letter that Paul wrote from Rome while he was in prison, and his purpose of writing was to encourage those believers, but also to warn those believers from false teaching. You see, there were some false teachers going around among the Colossians saying that Jesus was less than God. So last week, Paul began to proclaim who Jesus is. Look at Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 with me. Paul says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We might summarize this passage by saying, Jesus is the express image of God. Therefore, he is God. Jesus created all things, both in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he is God. All things were created for Jesus. Therefore, he is God. And finally, Jesus is before or greater than all things, and he holds everything together. Therefore, Jesus is God. But Paul's not done yet. Paul's still talking about who Jesus is and how he would define Jesus. And so we're going to pick up this passage in Colossians chapter 1 in verses 18 through 23. And we're going to read how we are reconciled to Christ. So Paul continues to describe Jesus. Look at verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then you are part of the church, the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head of the body. The idea is that Jesus is the origin of the church. He's the source of the church. He's also the leader of the church. Jesus is the head, and he's also called, right here, firstborn from the dead. It's not just saying that he was the first to be resurrected, never to die again. You think in Scripture there were several people who died and were brought back to life, healed, but they got old again or sick again, and then they died again. Jesus was the only one that resurrected, never to die again, and the first one, but the Bible, when it talks about first, firstborn from the dead, it also means that he's first in authority, first in his position, first in his honor over all. Paul's point in all of this is to show that Jesus is preeminent. Verse 18, that in all things he may have the preeminence. 
In other words, Jesus has absolute supremacy in all things. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our head. We see this idea with the titles Jesus has in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, where it says, And Jesus has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's in Revelation 19, 16. Jesus is over all things. He has the preeminence. Now, maybe you're not yet convinced that Jesus is God. Well, look at the next verse. Colossians 1, 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of God the Father dwells in Jesus the Son. Jesus is not less than God in any way, shape, or form. Now, on your note sheet, if you want to take notes today, your first fill in the blank, it says, if it denies or minimizes that Jesus is God, it is false teaching. If it denies or minimizes that Jesus is God, then it is false teaching. You see, Paul was concerned that the Colossians might be deceived by false teaching related to this. And still today, we must be on guard against false teaching. We have to know the Bible and compare everything that we hear with God's word. And that's what you hear from me included. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to compare it with scripture and let God's word be the authority on truth. So that way we too don't become deceived. You see, Mormonism teaches that God used to be a man who was exalted and has become God. But that's not what the Bible says. Scripture tells us the other way around. Man didn't become God. God became man. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is a created being with a beginning. He's not eternal. They also say that Jesus is not God Almighty, but Jesus is Michael, the archangel. But that's not what the Bible says. Islam teaches that Jesus is not God, but that Jesus is a great prophet. They also teach that Jesus wasn't crucified on the cross. It was Judas who was killed on the cross. But again, that's not what Scripture tells us. These are all false teachings that we need to be aware of. Here in Colossians 1, we read that Jesus has all the fullness of God dwelling in him. Still not convinced? Well, we read in Matthew 1.23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, because Jesus is God, when he became flesh, when he was born in that manger, he was given the title of God with us, not prophet with us, not archangel with us, but God with us. We read in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So here in Acts, it's calling Jesus' blood God's blood, spilled for you 
purchasing the church. Even Jesus' enemies knew that Jesus claimed to be God. In John chapter 10, verse 33, it says, The Jews answered Jesus, saying, For a good work we don't pick up these stones to, to stone you with, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see, they didn't believe that Jesus was God, but they knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And so they wanted to kill him. Even in the Old Testament, it is declared that the Christ, the Messiah, would be God. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Talking about how in the future, from Isaiah's perspective, there would be the Christ, the Messiah, that would come. And regarding him, the government would be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, Jesus is God. He has always been God, eternally existing as God. Jesus has no beginning and no end because he is God. And so Paul tells us again in verse 19 in Colossians chapter 1, he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should be dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We get this visual, if you look at the screen here, where you've got God who is holy and perfect, without sin. But we, humanity, we are sinful. We're unholy. There's this gap separating us and God. We cannot reach God because of our sin. We're unrighteous. But God could not jump the gap and ignore our sin and come down to us without our sin being dealt with because then God would be violating his justice and his truth. And so God became flesh. He became one of us. He became a man. And unlike us, he was the perfect man without sin. And so he spilled his blood on the cross for us, bridging the gap between God and man. This is how Jesus made peace. As God, he is perfect and he is holy. And as man, Jesus took our sin upon himself and he paid our debt. He was the ultimate substitute on our behalf. Jesus reconciled all things to himself. He even reconciled you to himself. Look at verse 21. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So you and I were alienated from God. Literally, it means that we were shut off from fellowship with God. We could have no intimacy with God because of our sin. Because of our sin, we were enemies with God. Yet through his death on the cross, all of our wicked works have been paid for in full, paid by his blood. So Jesus invites us to make him our Savior. You see, even though Jesus paid for the sins of the world on the cross, 
not everyone will be saved and go to heaven. That's your next fill in the blank on your note sheet. Not everyone will be saved and go to heaven. In other words, all roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you might say, but I thought Jesus reconciled all things to himself on the cross. So why then isn't everyone saved? I'm glad you asked. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross provided salvation for all people. It's a free gift that God offers you. We can imagine if we're all on an airplane, but it's not a fun ride because this airplane's running out of fuel. It's going to end prematurely. And so we've all been given a parachute, but it won't do you any good unless you put the parachute on. You've got to strap it on and buckle yourself in. You see, Jesus is our parachute. He offers himself to the whole world. And in this way, we've all been reconciled to Christ because we've all been offered that bridge to eternity, that bridge to relationship with God. But only those who put on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Only those who put their faith in Jesus will experience salvation. Everyone on the plane has been given a parachute, but some don't think they need it. They say, This plane? Crash? That seems a little dramatic to me. I think we're going to be just fine. I'm not going to put this on. Others are so distracted with enjoying the flight, enjoying this temporary life. They say, no, I don't don't want to put that on. I think it's going to interfere with my comfort and my enjoyment of this flight. So I'm not going to put this parachute on. I don't want it. What about you, church? Have you put on Christ? Have you received his gift of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins? Is Jesus your Savior? He's my Savior, but that doesn't help you. You have to make the decision for yourself. You must choose yourself to either be reconciled to God by putting your faith in him or to choose to remain alienated from God for all eternity. Now, look back at how Paul describes us Christians in verse 21. He says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you, you who have trusted in Jesus, to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach in his sight. You see, if you have put on Jesus, then he has made you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If you've given yourself to Jesus, then your sin no longer defines you. Your sin no longer explains who you are. We read in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, where it says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions or our sins from us. How amazing is that? 
Isn't that incredible? The moment that you trust in Jesus, the moment that you put him on in faith saying, Lord, I need you to save me. Would you have mercy on me? The moment you make that choice, he declares you holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's remarkable. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't feel holy and blameless and above reproach. In fact, I really ought to be at church more often. I should really be reading my Bible more. I really need to watch my tongue and live better. And those are good things. But we don't do those things in order to be saved. We do those things because we've already been saved. You see, those are good works that are a result of our salvation. Jesus doesn't call you holy and blameless because you've been a good boy or a good girl this week. He doesn't. He calls you holy and blameless because you've trusted in Jesus. That's why the Bible says we are saved by grace. God does the work. We simply received it by faith. Therefore, Jesus is preeminent. He's above all. He's greater than all. He has reconciled all things to himself. Jesus bridges the gap between God and man. Jesus bridges the gap between life and death. Jesus bridges the gap between heaven and earth. Jesus bridges the gap between eternity and time. So you might ask, must I simply trust in Jesus? Maybe pray a simple prayer and that's it? I'm saved for all eternity? Well, I would answer yes and no. You see, the answer can be yes because you can trust in Jesus with that simple prayer, crying out for his mercy and putting your faith in him. But the answer can also be no because if that's all that happens, is you pray a prayer or you stand up and you raise your hand at the altar call or whatever it may be, if that's the only thing that happens, then you haven't truly put your faith in Jesus. You see, we can't put our faith in Jesus and stay the same. Here in Colossians 1, Paul declares that you, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's sight if... Look at the next verse, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now stop there. Is Paul saying that you can lose your salvation if you don't continue in the faith? It almost sounds like Paul is saying that our eternal security depends on us continuing in the faith. And that's kind of a terrifying thought. When you come to tricky or confusing passages like this, then we need to remember to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's your next fill in the blank. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the clear verses shed light on the obscure verses. It's the idea of letting the Bible interpret itself. You see, God's word does not contradict itself. And so when we come to a verse like this that seems confusing, 
Find other verses on the same subject to help you have a fuller picture of what God is saying. So let's do this together with Colossians 1.23. It kind of seems maybe to indicate that, if, that we're reconciled to Jesus if we continue in the faith. It sounds like we can only continue to be saved as long as we continue in the faith. Well, what does the Bible say about salvation? We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we're saved by God's work, his finished work on the cross, not by our work, not by us doing or accomplishing anything. We're saved by grace. But also look at the very next verse in Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what it's saying is that the result of our salvation should be that we walk in these good works. Our good works don't save us, but our good works do show that our faith is genuine. Our good works show that our faith is real. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a blessing, what a great promise to know that we are secure in God's hand. Nobody can interfere with our salvation. You can be secure in Christ, knowing that if you've repented and trusted in Jesus, you are saved. You cannot lose your salvation. But you might ask, what about a Christian who's living in sin? Or what about a Christian who was walking with Jesus? They were a part of the church, but they've since turned away from Christ. They've turned away from their faith. These are great questions. You see, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, where it says, Whoever abides in him, in Christ, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, this verse is not saying that Christians will be perfect and sinless on this side of eternity. This verse is saying that a true, genuine Christian will not live in sin. A Christian who struggles in sin hates their sin. They don't want to give in to temptation. They struggle. They fight it. They pray about it. And yet still sometimes they stumble and they fall. They give in to temptation. And afterwards, man, they feel awful. All the time they're desiring and following Jesus. Even if sometimes it doesn't look like they're trying very hard. But man, they are. They struggle with their sin. On the other hand, someone who calls themselves a Christian and yet lives in sin, they may be a false believer. They might know the truths about Jesus. 
They might agree and believe that Jesus is God and that he rose again from the dead. But those living in sin, they haven't repented. They make excuses for their sin. They say, well, that's not a big deal. I know the Bible says that that's a sin, but I've prayed about it and I feel peace about it. You see, they're rewriting Scripture based on how they feel. They don't feel guilty about their sin. They may claim to follow Jesus, but their actions show that they're really just following their own heart. This is a person living in sin. And to the person living in sin, Jesus would say, repent. Stop living for yourself and follow me. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, they, talking about a group of people who have left the church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest or it might be made clear that none of them were actually of us. Here, the Apostle John is talking about those who lived like Christians for maybe a time. They were maybe a part of the local church, and yet they departed from the faith. The fact that they departed reveals that they were not truly Christians, but just blending in. A true Christian will continue in the faith, not continuing as a means to earn salvation, but continuing as a means to prove they really are faithful in Christ. They're proving that they really are trusting in Jesus. And this is the idea that Paul refers to back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, it shouldn't be a threat or something to fear, but it should be a healthy reminder for you and I to examine our faith to see if it's genuine. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So, are you following Jesus? Is there fruit in your life that shows how Christ has changed you? Do you love Jesus with both your words and your actions? These are great ways to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith, to see if our faith is real and genuine. You see, on your note sheet, two of Satan's greatest lies are convincing the saved that they are lost and convincing the lost that they are saved. You see, if Satan can convince a Christian to doubt their salvation, then they're going to live in fear and they're tempted to try to earn their salvation that God's already freely given them. Jesus would say, why are you trying to earn your parachute? It's on your back. You've already got it. Just rest in me. I know you mess up. I know you're not perfect. I saved you that way, but I'm working on you. Rest in me, Jesus would say. If Satan can convince a non-Christian that they're already saved, well, then they live in false confidence. Continuing in their sin not repenting, thinking that judgment will never come to them. Scripture gives us the answers. 
If you repent and put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. God views you as holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. You've been reconciled to God, and as a result, you will continue in Jesus. You will continue abiding in him. Your position in Jesus is secure in his hand. It doesn't depend on your strength, but his strength. And he will continue to make you more like him until the day you enter into his presence in heaven. If you find yourself stumbling or backsliding in your faith, don't listen to Satan's lies. Just keep pressing into Jesus. Cry out for his help. Look to him, and amazingly, he will meet us there in that low place. He will meet us there in our brokenness. He will meet us there when we feel like we are worthless. And he says, I'll take you as you are, and I'll save you. Are you worried about losing your salvation? Don't be. Just keep abiding in Jesus. And if you do, we have this promise in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where it says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What a great promise. So Paul has reminded the Colossians of their salvation in Jesus, and he encourages them, continue in the faith. Don't be shaken by trials or false teaching, but continue in the faith. And now we get to verses 24 and 29. We read about Paul's suffering and labor for Christ. Verse 24 Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Pause there for a moment. What is Paul saying? Does Paul mean that Jesus' suffering on the cross wasn't enough? Did Christ leave the job unfinished and lacking? This is kind of confusing. But I, I vaguely remember somebody saying, Something like, let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's see what other verses might shed light on this passage. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, we read in John 19, verse 30. It says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So according to this verse, Jesus considered his work to be done. His suffering for sin was finished, paid for in full in the cross. Therefore, Paul cannot mean that his suffering, Paul's imprisonment for Christ, is somehow adding to Jesus' finished work on the cross. The work of atonement is complete. Now, let me ask you a question. Does Jesus still suffer today? Does Jesus experience affliction? Now, I confess, this is kind of a trick question. 
You see, before Paul was a Christian, Paul went by the name of Saul, and he was an anti-Christian. Saul persecuted the church. He arrested Christians. He threw them into prison. He even approved of their death for teaching about Jesus. When Saul was on the road to go persecute more Christians, a great light appeared before Saul, and it blinded him. And we read in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Then Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, notice what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus was already ascended up into heaven at this point. But remember, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. And so when his body suffers affliction, we might say Jesus suffers affliction. He takes it that personally. So on one hand, Jesus is done suffering the wrath of God and judgment for our sin. He's done that in full on the cross. His work is finished. But on the other hand, Jesus' body, the church, continues to suffer the afflictions of Christ. But notice the difference. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself, but today the church suffers the wrath of man. Paul was in prison in Rome not because of God's wrath, but because of man's wickedness, who saw him preaching the gospel and said, you're stirring up too much trouble, we're going to put you in prison. It wasn't God's wrath, it was man's wrath. Since the church must suffer persecution for Jesus, Paul says, I'm happy, even blessed, to be a part, to do my part of filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's amazing to think that when we suffer for Jesus, he takes it personally. And that's your next fill in the blank. When we suffer for Jesus, he takes it personally. Jesus cares so much for you that he considers himself to be the one persecuted. So Paul says in verse 24, back in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. 
This mystery of the gospel is that God would not only save Israel, he wouldn't only save the Jews, but God would also save Gentiles, non-Jews. That God would take both the Jews and the Gentiles and make them one body, one church united in him. This was a mystery, not in the normal sense of mystery we use today, but when the Bible talks about a mystery, it's a mystery because in the Old Testament, it wasn't clearly talked about. But in the New Testament, God has revealed this amazing truth, Jews and Gentiles becoming one, united in Jesus. And so Paul says in verse 27, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Underline that last phrase in your Bibles, the end of verse 27 there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, would dwell in the heart of a Jew, dwelling in the heart of a descendant of Abraham, well, that was amazing. It was incredible. And yet, even more than that, Jesus dwells in the hearts of Gentiles who trust in him. This is beyond amazing. That's why Paul describes it as the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Paul can't be wordy enough to talk about how amazing it is that Christ would dwell in us, even we who are not Jews. We're not of Israel. It means that if you died today and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? Here's your response. It's nothing that I've done, but it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's it. That is our hope, church. You see, on your note sheet, this is your spiritual account balance as a Christian. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me. Your value is found in Christ. Your hope of eternal life is secure because not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. That's amazing. Paul finishes this chapter with verses 28 and 29. Paul says, Him, Christ, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul does not preach ideas or politics. Paul doesn't preach morals or religion. Paul preaches a person. Him we preach. He preaches Jesus. To the lost, Paul warns them of their danger. He says, apart from Christ, there is no hope, but only eternal suffering in hell. To the saved, Paul teaches them everything he knows about Jesus. The idea is we don't receive Jesus and then wait to know him until heaven. But we receive Christ and then work out your own salvation. Get busy loving and knowing Christ now. 
You see, instead of asking the question that says, well, how close to the world can I be and still go to heaven? How much of my flesh can I enjoy and still escape hell? That's the wrong question. Instead, ask the question, how close to Jesus can I be on this side of eternity? How much of Christ in me can I see in my life, in my heart, in my words, in my choices, in my relationships, at my job, in everything? And as we begin to, well, I'll speak for myself, as I begin to list off all those categories, I think, man, Lord, you've got a lot of work to go in me. But it's his work. My job is to simply keep pressing into Jesus. Say, Lord, I am nothing without you. But with you, I have Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's amazing. Paul says in verse 29, Paul says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul says, I strive with all my strength to help people get closer to Jesus. But it's not really my strength. It's the power of God working in me. Paul says, I work hard, but really God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. So church, what are you striving for? God has reconciled all things to himself through Jesus. Have you received his gift? Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have Christ in you? Don't let sin rule and reign in your life. Don't live in it. Don't accept it. But repent and turn to Jesus. Cling to Christ, the hope of glory. Ask God to fill you with his strength so that in Christ you might continue in the faith. Don't slow down. Don't give up, church. Press on to know him more, to love him better, and to bring more glory to his name. Because Jesus has all preeminence, supreme over all things. And so may Jesus be supreme in your heart and in your life and mine as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that though we are sinners and there is such a great, incredibly vast gap between us and you, the holy God, Lord, you became flesh. God, you paid our debt in full with your blood spilled on the cross so that anyone who trusts in you will be saved. God, thank you that you have given, offered this gift of salvation, eternal life to everyone. And Lord, if there's somebody here today or listening online that has not yet put their faith in you, Lord, maybe they know the truths about you. God, they believe who you are, but their life is all about themselves. Lord, may it be today that your Holy Spirit speaks to them and calls them by name and says, Drink of me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you waters, living waters, flowing from you. 
Lord, you simply tell us to turn away from our sin and turn to you and say, Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? God, would you save me? And Lord, we thank you for your promise that you will. God, from that moment on, we are holy and blameless and above reproach in your sight. God, thank you for our eternal secure position in you as a Christian, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And God, we invite you to continue to shape and mold our hearts. God, would you purge out the flesh? Would you change our desires? Would you make us more and more like you so that those around us can see the Jesus that is living inside of us, the Jesus that is changing us from the inside out, the Jesus who has reconciled all things to himself. God, to you be all the glory and all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.